What's up, everybody? My name is Rob Moore. Welcome back to the Tape Deck Podcast. Situated in beautiful, cloudy, kind of warm Seattle. Today is May 22nd, 2020. It's a Friday. Today on the podcast, we'll have an interview with uh, up-and-coming legendary freelance music journalist, Mr. Eli Ennis, who is based in Pittsburgh. He's written for so many different publications. If you read music journalism right now, you've probably read one of his articles. He's fantastic. I'm super excited to share that for you. Before we do, let's get a little bit into the music we covered this week. Um, not too much at the moment. Um, I know I listened to Perfume Genius's new record, which if you haven't done that, you need to go check it out right now because he is absolutely one of the most phenomenal singer-songwriters working today. His new record is called Set My Heart on Fire, comma, immediately. And it's a super cool foray into a whole bunch of different styles. Uh, so many of his best songs ever recorded are on this record. We really, really, really loved it. And also, Mr. Jeff Rosenstock put out a brand new surprise record this week on Wednesday called No Dream. Um, we also really, really loved that record. We put out a, a review of it. It wasn't one of those super slapshot reviews that people normally do. We listened and listened and listened and made sure that we covered it as best as we could. So please go check out that review. And check out all of our content on tapedeckpodcast.com. If you like what you read, please consider subscribing to the Patreon. You get bonus content. You get weekly, long-form, retrospective reviews that I put my heart and soul into. And you also get early access to this podcast, so we hope you really appreciate it. And now, please enjoy this interview. I'm going to go listen to the new Bitch Fits single. Thank you so much for listening. Enjoy. Today with me on the podcast, I've got Eli Ennis, who is a freelance music journalist, an editor for The Alternative. He's contributed to tons of publications. I can't even list them off with two hands. Billboard, Vice, Entertainment Weekly, uh, Bandcamp, Consequence of Sound. The list goes on and on and on. And he's also a co-host for another music podcast uh, called Endless Scroll. The guy is such a hard worker, and I am so excited to have him on the podcast. Eli, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Rob. It's a, it's a pleasure. So I'm going to start you off immediately with maybe a little bit of a potentially awkward question. Okay. Uh, what was your opinion on the new Carsey headrest record? Oh, I like that question. I was just listening to it like 10 minutes ago. Um, I like the new Carsey headrest record. I, I I know that it was there. I saw some people, some people before it came out, like people were kind of trashing the singles and I was like, oh shit, this might be. The, it's gonna um, be a controversial release. Yeah, this might be the one people kind of turn a little bit on them. I can't. It seems like it's kind of hit or miss with fans, but I enjoy it. I don't love it. It is definitely. I'm. Their teens of denial is like a super super important record to me. Um, it's one of my favorite albums I've probably ever heard. So like, I didn't really ex- have any anticipation of it surpassing that. I didn't really feel like it needed to, but I guess in some ways it leaves a little to be desired. Um, but overall, when I when I when it's on and I'm listening to it, I was just cooking to it earlier. I'm jamming out. Like I think it's got some solid grooves, and I think it's going to kind of grow on me over time. It's got some. It's got some bops, as the kids would say. I guess it has some bops. Yeah, yeah. It slaps. Say, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I mostly agree with you. I wrote my own independent review of it. Uh, oh shit! One second. Did you hear that? Okay, I'm I'm sitting in front of a keyboard, and I accidentally hit the button on it. Oh, um, I didn't actually I, hear it, but okay, cool. Um, I. Yeah, I mostly agree with you. I again, I wrote my own independent review of it. Uh, you know what's funny? I was list- as I was listening to it, the record that kept popping into my mind 
was uh, Mac DeMarco's most recent record, uh, Here mm. Comes the Cowboy. Okay. Because both records to me have this sense of you've got this artist who is very aware of the expectations that they've got on them. And they're trying as subtly as they can while still trying to maintain sort of their, their tier, their popularity, you know, pulling away from those expectations being like, okay, guys, let's settle down a little bit. You know, I'm just, I'm just an artist, you know, Mm. I I sensed a little bit of it in this record. You know, I know that the liner notes on it were very like, this is just a collection of songs. It's not necessarily supposed to be like a big crafted thing, Mm. you know? And it was, and I think you're right. I, overall, I liked it, but it was very scattershot. I think there were a couple of moments that were, you know, a little more free spirited than perhaps maybe they ended up being, you know, kind of iffy i thought that like for instance you listen to the song hollywood right oh yeah yeah what a strange track <laughs> it's a strange track i i will say that like i a lot of people have said that's just like a straight up like really corny like really bad song i honestly enjoy the song when i hear it i think it's a little <laughs> ridiculous it's a little you absurd. have to get into it you got to be yeah. on its wavelength i just think that will toledo's funnier than a lot of people give him credit for i would say so and too he he gives himself the space to be funny he does. I think that he's trying to be a little funnier on this album, maybe in a more subtle way. I don't know if it always landed that well, because there's nothing like there's parts of of Teens in Denial that literally make me laugh out loud. Like um, not quite the same, but I just think like don't don't treat him as too self-serious because I don't know if he is in, in every regard. I think when people listen to indie rock of that variety, they go into it with the expectation of self-seriousness because that's just what the genre is known for. Mm-hmm. you know and i think that it's it's very easy to to read a lot of gestures that that musicians in that field try to make as being funny as not or like maybe like a flat attempt i don't know it feels like it feels like they're up against bad odds when they're trying to do that which mm-hmm. kind of sucks because that that does make that genre a little bit limiting in that regard you know just to the stuff that i've listened to but overall i thought it was not a bad record certainly not as bad as i think some people are claiming it is yeah, I actually yeah. think that back to marker comparison is an excellent comparison. Mm-hmm. I didn't even think about that, but that is like, yeah, a good way of thinking about it. Putting it in yeah, it makes me want to see what he is doing next. You know, I also will say, man, Carsey Headrest are just one of those bands that paradoxically have just built up such a cult following, like more mm-hmm. so, I think, than a lot of other bands I've seen, a lot of musical acts. Um, good God. Did you ever listen to any of the uh, the One Trait Danger um, I actually I haven't what listened to any of that stuff yet. Ooh. Well, it, <laughs> it depends no. on your definition of good. Um, <laughs> I They're popular, uh, uh-huh. especially among the people that really like Car Seat Headrest. Um, they're essentially tossed off rap albums. He had he has two, and they're both on Bandcamp for a dollar. So if you're interested uh-huh. in contributing to that fund, you know, you, you can do it as you want to. But for me personally, I, I listened to One Trait World Tour, which is the most recent one last year, because it came out in around April. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, wasn't great. I mean, it's yeah. it's not supposed to be good, but yeah, you know, it's it, it buys into that mythos. If you listen to it, you can sort of sense where Toledo's head is when he's making this kind of music. You know, he just sort of is opening himself up to freer like experimentation, like not not giving in to pressure to make like no. a super self serious record. You know, so it's Even funny. If- I'm actually looking at the one trait Spotify right now, and there's like an artist playlist that Andrew Katz made. Yeah, of like one trait jams and. The artists on it are like Knife Party and Bass oh, Nectar and Skrillex. So, yeah. And it's funny because I know I saw like, you know, I well, I actually interviewed 
Will Toledo and he was telling me like, you know, Andrew is super influenced by EDM and he kept using the phrase EDM, which is like kind of a catch all that you don't really hear. Like I wouldn't expect someone like an art, an artiste like Will Toledo to kind of use like EDM as sort of like a word, like, you know, college fratty electronic ravers would use to describe their genre but it's funny because i was like well i wonder if that's what andrew cast is into it kind of and listen i have a soft spot for that kind of dubstep but like it's that's interesting to hear like car seat headrest kind of being influenced by bass nectar and these like <laughs> artists that would never get the uh the appreciation of pitchfork or sort of the indie sphere that yeah not any, not that. back then, at least. Not Nowadays, back then. who Maybe knows? Maybe now they would, but yeah, that's just entertaining to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. It is, isn't it? I mean, EDM to me. I mean, if we're talking about the classic genre, yes, I can imagine what EDM means. But like, as far as like electronic dance music, there's it just covers so many. There's yeah, so I mean, many it's kind types of like just of, saying rock, basically. <laughs> yeah, which is just it's so many hats. You know, it's crazy. Um, yeah. I think I don't think there's somebody who is more influential on car seat headrest sound than Andrew Katz. Just listening to what was going on with uh, One Tray and now this record, it, which was co-produced, I think, between him and Katz. Yeah, Katz too. I think. I mean, he's he does vocals on Hollywood too. He does. And then so there's another song that's done by another uh, another member of the band. I think it's more like an interlude. But that was actually one of my favorite tracks. I just I liked how short it was. Um, oh shoot, what was it called? What's with you lately? Oh okay. Yeah, that was done by um, Ethan. Oh my God, I forget his last name, but another member of the band. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Ethan Headrest. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I, so I do appreciate them opening that up. You know, I thought it was right. I, I did mention it was going to be a potentially uh, awkward question because I did see that you did an interview for Entertainment Weekly with uh, Will Toledo. You know, which uh, lucky. Yeah, no, I mean, all. I, I kind of really... kept the um, my personal opinions out of that. Just always, always when you're in an interview, you know? Yeah. Like, I I don't know. I mean, I've done interviews with bands before, you know, on the podcast before, but I've never sat down and like transcribed an interview that I've recorded, you know, as such, especially not with somebody as important to that scene as Will Toledo, you know? So I can imagine there must be like a decorum or something like that. You know, you just sort of, you sit there and you have to sort of get rid of all of your opinions and just sort of respect the artist that's there. You know, which is, in my opinion, that's kind of easy, I guess, because, yeah. you know, yeah, I think it's easier for some people than others. For me, it comes kind of easy, but I know some people have trouble, like, really separating their own emotions from an artist's work. And then, like, it can be kind of intimidating to talk to them. And I, I understand that. But I guess, like, I just, somehow I've done maybe I've done it enough or maybe I just am like, I can compartmentalize those things easier. Yeah. Speaking of which, um. You know, you've written so much and, and, and for so many publications. When did you actually start doing all of this? So, I mean, I started, I guess there's two ways of putting it. Like, I started getting paid for it when I graduated college. That was this like three years ago. It's 2017. How did that um, feel? I mean, that felt good. The, the only thing was I went to college for journalism and... I was kind of in a program that was it, it was very good and that it taught me the fundamentals of writing and journalistic integrity and sort of these things that I definitely needed to know and I still hold with me today. But it was not a program that was very attuned to the actual landscape of digital media. And well, first of all, the precarity of it. And second of all, how to be a freelancer was something I was never taught. So like I didn't really I really didn't even understand what a freelancer was until I graduated because it was kind of like taught 
under the assumption that, oh, you'd get a job, like a staff job somewhere. And I was like, well, I'm not going to get a staff job. I'm not, I'm not going to live in New York. So how am I going <laughs> to? What what uh, school did you end up going to, by the way? I went to University at Albany. Albany. Okay, that's right. University of Albany. See, and that makes so much sense. I feel like a lot of college courses, education, academia in that regard can be a little behind the times when they're educating, especially when it comes to something as as rapidly changing as journalism. Yeah. Like it, the, the landscape has changed so much within the last five years, like oh, yeah. let alone, you know, as long as it would take for, for educators to come up with curriculum, you know? So unless you're, you're being taught under somebody who is right there and knows what's happening, it's going to be a little outdated. So I can imagine that, you know? Yeah. But so, I mean, I guess it's like, I graduated, I did a couple internships, so I graduated and started freelancing for one of the places I was interning at. Um, even though I moved to Pittsburgh, they still let me write about kind of local Albany music. Um, and then I started writing for an, like an alt weekly paper here. And eventually I, I just, well, I just started sending emails to editors and noisy and fader, whoever I could, whoever I was reading and dreaming of writing for. And, probably sent so many horrible formatted emails that just like were not to the right address or like not phrased the right way. Cause just kind of like, um, formatting that editors like for pitches that kind of just got to ask around and figure out it's, there's not really a whole lot of guidance. So I guess it kind of slowly started, but, and then I started writing like full time freelance, um, about a year and a half ago, like the very beginning of 2019. So wow. that's kind of the timeline. All right. Okay. So at the time that you started doing freelance, it, it hasn't been that long. Like maybe about just. I guess it hasn't been that long. Not three years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, congratulations for uh, for finding the success that you found in in the the few amount of years that you've been doing it. You know, on a professional level. Um, what made you want to start uh, as a as a journalist, especially um, in a music journalism scene? Yeah. So I was thinking about this recently. Like I. I was always like really, I guess from the beginning of high school, I just became super, super obsessed with music. It kind of became my thing, but I didn't play music really at the time. And I didn't really know. I just knew I wanted to participate in the music industry somehow, but I didn't really know what I was going to do. So I started writing. I guess I was a decent writer in high school, just like in English class. And I started writing little submitting reviews, like Sputnik music and like Mm -hmm. ultimate guitar, I think like, yeah. Just like contributor base, like anyone who posts a review, like essentially forums um, and being like, oh, I kind of like this. I kind of like writing about an album. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, when I went, I just, I mean, I, I decided I was going to go to school um, and I was like, I guess I'll choose journalism because it's writing and I, that sounds good. And I also mm-hmm. like music. So I guess I'll do music journalism. And I kind of just like fell into it. And I ended up really like I was never super into school in high school. I was never that good at focusing. Like it was hard for me to like stay focused. I wasn't the best student, but like I really, I took off <laughs> with um, journalism. I, cool. I really, it clicked with me immediately. So I, I kind of fell in love with like journalistic writing and became more into news and stuff in general. And then I was like equally enamored with music still. So it kind of just, just happened. <laughs> cool. Excellent. So it was pretty organic. I would say. Yeah, it was pretty organic. Okay. Um, and then I guess at the t- early college, I, I did start writing for like little blogs um, 
who I like just from people who I had met in like Facebook groups. Mm. Um, I was in like a pop punk Facebook group (laughs) or something. And I was like, Oh, I want to write for someone's and like someone ran a little WordPress press blog. And eventually I bounced around between enough of those and, uh, started my own blog at one point for a while. So yeah, I've kind of been doing it for a while, but not like super seriously until senior year of college, probably. I see. Okay, cool. Um, as far as like music journalism uh, is concerned, are there any um, specific publications that you really that you remember really enjoying? Are there any that you really enjoy now? Definitely, growing up in high school, I was very I was a very loyal alternative press reader. Alternative I had, press. Um, I had a subscri- subscription. I'd get it monthly. Um, Physical copy. And I kind of took. Sorry, what was that? Physical copy. Physical copy. Wow. Um, the time yeah oh my god so I, was into that. I was into revolver i was really into metal in high school metal and kind of like warp tour like pop punk that was sort of my wheelhouse in high school um mm. and eventually grew out of that in college and yeah i just started reading you know what everyone else reads pitchfork stereo gum um mm-hmm. fader vice uh i still try to read stereo gum like every day mm-hmm. they're probably they're like, great yeah, probably most just because they cover like a lot of like the small underground music that I still listen to and try to write about. It's so important. Yeah, you know? uh, I think honestly that is one of the things I've found that underground music has a tough time servicing. I mean, there's obviously so much music out nowadays, and the whole industry has changed. But uh, I hear so much. I'm surrounded by so much underground music just in the city alone, and then all of the stuff that I end up finding on Bandcamp that people um, post mm-hmm. on Twitter that send to me on social media, news sites, you know, uh, it just, there's so much that doesn't end up getting covered either because those, those bands and artists don't have PR working for them or they don't have the gumption or the motivation to send out stuff or, or maybe the confidence really at mm-hmm. that point. And I think, but that is so important, you know, cause, cause at one point it's just, well, how how much momentum do you need where you need like a somebody doing your marketing and somebody reaching out for press like how much is that needed now to get any sort of coverage from any bigger news sites you know so i think that it's it's one of those things that is so important nowadays and and i think it's one of the things that that music journalism nowadays is is not lacking but there's so many sites that don't get enough coverage because of that you yeah know? i mean it's yeah it it's kind of bleak when you really get into it but like (laughs) it's mostly because of the way sites are funded by advertising and yeah true therefore rely on clicks and traffic so they have to run coverage on things that will garner the most traffic to keep Mm -hmm. the lights on Mm -hmm. and therefore smaller thing yeah so smaller artists get cut in the process because they're not seen as uh you know economically viable always um which is not the fault of writers or editors. I, I don't think, I, I think that the vast majority of working music journalists want to cover what they want to listen to. And, and that's typically tends to be smaller artists or more obscure things, just because that's the nature of people working in music media to be a music nerd, but um, are often bound to covering bigger things and therefore kind of things that have more PR push because they have the resources for it. So it just becomes a little self-feeding. Yeah sometime but uh, you asked me if there's anything i like to read now stereo gum but also Bandcamp daily is yes probably 
the best. God, what a great resource. Oh yeah. Yeah. Just cause they, I mean, and I'll say like they don't have advertising in the way that other websites do. So they don't rely on, um, the same, they don't have the same funding model cause they, cause they're funded by the Bandcamp marketplace. So they don't have to worry about traffic so they can run like super in depth stories, pay writers very well and very fairly to write about completely obscure artists that literally no other site and maybe like small blogs, but no like major music site will ever write about. So that's just incredible that they're doing that work. It's about as good a situation as it can be right now, considering the state of the industry. Definitely. You know, and we can, you know, you can, people can talk and say that Bandcamp is not perfect considering the revenue share, but like there is not a site right now that does it better for their artists than Bandcamp at the moment, you know? I mean, no, I mean, especially with the Bandcamp Friday. Yeah. Um, oh my God. Doing. Incredible. Um, uh, I, I did not participate last Friday, but I participated on, was it the 20th of March when it was, uh, the first was, time they did the revenue? It was, was it early actually, April? Yeah, I believe it was. It was, yeah, it was late March. Yeah. Um, oh my God. I, I took the moment to do that and I accidentally, um, I accidentally, uh, pulled a fraud alert on my credit card by accident. So I was oh, trying no. to, I was trying to buy too much from too many, uh, at the same time, I don't know wow. why I decided to do that. Yeah. But because of that, I got halfway through the list and it just stopped. And uh, then it was a weekend, so I couldn't clear it because uh, I use a credit union in Massachusetts. And uh, oh, no. and I just, yeah, I, had to, I was like, damn it, I got to buy the rest of this one uh, on a day that they're not uh, waiving the revenue. So well, I tried noble, my hardest. Uh, that's a noble way to get a credit card fraud. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Well, you know, <laughs> take the punches. <laughs> So you've been interviewing a ton of people. You've been doing a ton of features. Um, I'm assuming, you know, you've, you've, you've done so much and covered so much ground over the last uh, few years. Are there any pieces or people that you've interviewed that you remember doing that you were just like, wow, damn, this was so awesome. Hmm. That's a good question. I'm actually just scrolling through my portfolio now to remind myself of specifics. Um, I had a really good conversation with the artist Lala Lala. Um, Never heard of him. Oh, she's really awesome. Um, from Chicago. Uh, has put out a record a couple years ago on um, Hardly Art. and Oh, I do like Hardly Art. It's a great record Hardly label. Hardly Art's rad, yeah. yeah. Um, but anyways, she, I, I busted the interviews I do her over the phone just because, you know, m- most artists, if they do in-person press, it's typically in New York or LA or like a bigger city where like a lot of media people are but um this one i just happened to be traveling to see a show and she was playing it so i got to do it in person and that was super rewarding because her and i talked about her story um she has kind of an interesting artistic background and kind of had some went through some hard times in life and was able to be open with me about it and and sometimes over the phone that that can come easily other times a little more challenging because it's like not face to face with the person. And a lot of times artists are talking to me about pretty personal things. So it's always, it's always better in person. And that one was just like Mm -hmm. particularly great. I don't know. She was a great subject and um, I felt good about that one. And that was, that was like two years ago now. Um, Cool. But another one, I guess the, like a recent one, probably my favorite one I've ever written was I profiled the, uh, the band code orange, Code Orange. Okay. I actually just read that piece. Oh, thank you. Yeah, man. Because <laughs> so they live cool. in Pittsburgh, so I got to just go over to their house and Fuck that yeah. was 
also really cool because in person and we had a really good conversation. So. You actually went to jujitsu class with them. I did, yeah. Cool. <laughs> Who set that up? Uh, I did. I was just like, I knew they had done it, and I was like, that sounds like a cool way to like introduce the piece. So cool. Can I come? And they were like, yeah, sure. <laughs> nice. Oh my god. All right. So I don't know if you mentioned this in the interview, but we were talking beforehand. You are currently in a band right now, right? Yeah. Like based in Pittsburgh, you know. Um, and uh, you've been playing music for in. I mean, I don't know how long you've been playing music for that band, but you've been playing music for a good portion of your life, right? Um, I started playing guitar in freshman year of college, so I guess like six years now. Okay, six, a, years. a good percentage. Yeah, um, a, good, a good amount of years. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's funny because um, before, I, I mean, I got into music late in college, started playing music late in college, and then uh, and went to Seattle to do that. But bef- I was into music writing before that, and... Uh, I found that playing music sort of gave me a little bit more of a perspective on how to write about music and how to cover it because it, it does give you a little bit of perspective on uh, like what goes into recording, what it feels like to make music, what it feels like mm-hmm. to tour, you know. Uh, is this something you agree with? Does, is playing music help you sort of provide that perspective? I think so. Yeah. Um, I... <laughs> I, I I definitely agree with that, but I also think that my brain like separates the two, like my personal band and my music writing. I just like don't they don't they don't cross over too much, and that like I don't really think about my music the way that I think about how I would cover someone else's music. Um, Interesting, because it, it's extremely challenging for me to describe what I think my own music sounds like, which is very ironic because I spend all day describing what other people's <laughs> It's the hardest like. Well, music is, I mean, it's meant to be a, a medium that goes beyond language, I guess. Yeah, so. and then we're, we're the dorks who have to put it into words. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh my God. What, what's that old quote that Frank Zappa said that uh, writing about music is like dancing about architecture? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Something like um, that, yeah. Same thing. Um, I, I, I get you. I, I absolutely... I haven't tried to make music since I started doing this writing thing. Um, but mm-hmm. I imagine, I imagine it's sort of the same way, you know, you come up when you're writing music, it is sort of a more alchemical process than just sort of knowing what works in writing and having like a strict structure and then just following that, you know? Um, I, yeah, I guess one thing it def- I, I guess I could say specifically that it changed. Like I, I think like a, a pretty common interview question is like, well, what's your writing process? And I think sometimes that that's, that's like totally valid, but like, I realized I was asking that in every interview and I was usually getting the same response. It's just kind of like, mm-hmm. Oh, well, you know, I come up with the melody and add a guitar. And then like, once I started writing my own songs and realizing that like the writing, like actually the actual process of like, it's so incidental. Song, yeah. It's, it's very, incidental. it's not always that exciting either. It's kind of like, yeah, I just came up with something and slowly worked it out and mm-hmm. it sounds fucking awesome now. But like, so it's kind of like maybe realize like, yeah, like, writing a song isn't really necessarily this like mystical process that's worth like getting into it's more so like writing about <laughs> what the end product is or where the inspiration from the song came from so i True. guess that's like one thing i can think and of. that can change over time too you can have an idea i mean a lot of the times the songs that i wrote i don't remember how they i came up with them yeah and then they'll just be in a dropbox somewhere just songs that i'll never share with anyone but i'll just i'll listen to them <laughs> and i'll be like why did i come up with this where did i come up with this and it doesn't you know, you have the maybe a, a, a weird lingering feeling, but nothing nothing that would place you sometimes, you know. 
So who knows? I think you're right. I, it does a lot of the times it is just the end process that matters, you know, man. Also, as somebody, I mean, I, I, I was only interviewed maybe once or twice on my music, but hearing those questions, it, it's so stressful. Oh, it's so stressful. <laughs> <You know? Yeah. laughs> just to be like, you know, especially if you're asked the question like, well, what does this mean? You know, what were you trying to go for? Yeah. You know, <laughs> oh, man. Or again, what does your music sound like? You know, such I a think, hard like yeah. Being the other and the other side of that like definitely gave me. I've only been interviewed like twice because of my music, but like I was like, oh shit, like um, <laughs> now I know what I put people. What am yeah? Down. What am I? What am I enacting on these people I'm interviewing? <laughs> you know. Although I guess if you are a musician of that caliber, you, you sort of have to prepare it. I guess it's it's one of those things that you just sort of have to expect it to come. Yeah, I think artists who are yeah like full time. If you're at that level, artists, yeah, yeah. So there's one thing there's one thing I want to bring up but it's a little bit of a hard topic because it's always changing. Mm-hmm. Um but I mean you and I have been paying attention to music journalism for at least a little bit, you know, a good percentage of of our lives. Mm-hmm. Um I like to think that it has changed significantly since the last time it changed significantly, which was around the early to mid 2000s when the internet was a thing and all of a sudden People were sharing music, and um, uh, yeah, I was reading an article on uh, long reads about how that's changed. You know, I feel mm. like it's changed again. You know, as far as like writing about music, I'm here. Maybe specifically, I'm talking about um, lesser known music, underground music. I feel like there is. It's more about spotlighting. I guess I don't know what it is, mm. but like maybe music coverage, music criticism specifically is more about finding music that is enjoyable and then picking out what's good about it rather than taking something to to task and like being like, well, this is what's doing good. This is what it's doing bad. You know, um, I, think I that's, agree. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you think there's any other ways that it might have changed or, or, or trends that you've noticed in music journalism? Hmm. Hard question, right? Yeah, I guess mostly hard because I've mostly grown up reading online journalism besides mm-hmm. those like print alternative press magazines. But like, yeah. I think that this is kind of a critique I've seen older writers mention and it definitely checks out to me is like internet music writers. I mean, myself is certainly included in this kind of like, it's hard for us to imagine a time before internet music writing and kind of that voice. So mm-hmm. like, there's kind of this like all this lost history of music criticism and canon that hasn't made it onto the internet because I think like it's really easy to be online all day and kind of assume that like everything that ever existed is somehow documented online. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's really not the case at all. So there's so much just kind of history and work that isn't really being referenced and isn't really being, you know, given its proper due and maybe like, influencing the current generation of writers again i'm speaking about myself here and <laughs> i guess other peers as well but like so i think that it's kind of like a little bit insular in that sense the old um, gods are dead a little bit maybe yeah uh, like i guess i don't know it's maybe a little too self-referential <laughs> and um i don't know like it's it's kind of question can go a lot of places but like this kind of like the idea i've talked about with some people is like what well, who is what what is modern music criticism for like who is it for yeah because 
sometimes the writing is like so insider baseball that <laughs> it's almost like, well, is this being written for readers or is this being written for like other music writers and like PR people? Mm, I don't know oh if that man. was always the case. I can't speak to it. I don't think it was though, yeah. but well, yeah. it's, it's funny. Uh, music criticism or, or I mean, it used to be, you know, you'd have big Titans like Graham Marcus and Robert Kreisgau talk mm-hmm. about, you know, and, and Kreisgau himself being a consumer's guide. And I think that does sort of lend to the notion that when you're writing music criticism, it's for the person who's potentially purchasing the music. Of course, this was at a time when purchasing music was actually a thing that people did on the mm-hmm. regular, you know? Um, and then, uh, Obviously, then when uh, the internet happened and, and got popular, and then you have music blogs covering music, and then it's more about well, you know, staying in the know, and uh, and it was still for people discovering music, but it wasn't so much a purchasing guide as it was like a, a spotlighting thing. And then you have uh, blogs like Pitchfork and uh, and uh, blogs of that sort that are that are sort of almost treating it like an art form, a little bit like yeah. being really eclectic and not being afraid to be weird and, and, and writing pieces that are controversial because of the fact that they're not necessarily strict writing, you know, and then that sort of lent a little bit of an adventurousness. It was sort of the reason why they ended up getting big. And then, and then from there now, a lot of music writing that you see is not necessarily, or at least the stuff that doesn't get big, it's, it's not necessarily long form. It's more, kind of surface level you're not as pressured to write long pieces anymore you know which you know quantity over quality there's an argument for that but i'm thinking of a a a ton of uh of uh music publications and articles that do like the now standard like two to three sentences per paragraph even like one sentence paragraphs you know and you even see it uh yeah right i even see it when i uh when i post something to the tape or I'm writing something for the tape deck uh it uses wordpress and I downloaded a uh, yoast which is an seo mm-hmm. optimization thing and uh it's giving me all these pointers about how to up readability and uh every single article I put out the readability is always like below 50 percent and it's like yeah it's every single tip is just like make sure these paragraphs are like two to three sentences long don't use big words you know like mm. it's like oh crap who am I writing for yeah. You know, I don't know. Just some things like that sort of clue me into the fact that it is a different landscape, you know, and that writing of a certain nature is not necessarily becoming outdated, but it's there's less of a guard behind it. I think there's yeah. definitely less like experimental music writing as there was with early Pitchfork. Mm-hmm. And that like initial blog voice of the 2000s is kind of reverted more into like a little bit more of a serious tone mm-hmm. or a little bit more like of a proper writing style true kind of like not, it's not, not the worst thing no it's not necessarily because some of that, a lot stuff of that early was, pitchfork which is unreadable but yeah, some of that stuff was insufferable yeah. um but i do think that sometimes yeah I, I just think that sometimes it can feel a little joyless if it's just like a few sentences but i, I also think that that's sometimes the writers and sometimes it's just the the tools that they're being given and the, and the, the, the framework, the economic framework that they're working within. Yeah, of course. Well, that makes sense. You know, I, you mentioned joyless. Um, I think, I mean, everyone is sort of feeling the effects of, of, I mean, part of the thing of being a freelance is working sort of in a gig economy and, um, 
you oh, know, yeah, it's, it's really fun, easy. Right? Yeah, it's and it's real easy to get burnt out in that regard. So, I, I can see that sort of infecting whatever might be coming out as far as like that that big umbrella term content creation. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it, it's hard not to feel sometimes like it is just one big bland paste, especially now that um, th- that was one big phenomenon that I that I remember remarking upon earlier is that I remember I don't remember because I wasn't born and, and wasn't a conscious thinking human being but back in the 80s and, and around that time there were social circles in like schools that were based on what type of music you listen to you know mm-hmm. whether that was like goth circles or like even even later down the road if you listen like pop punk or goth or or, or metal if you were that kind of kid <laughs> and nowadays I feel like I mean it's been so long since I've been inside a high school but I feel like just from interacting with teenagers how it feels like you're that's still happening, but you're defining yourself based on what type of media you consume, you know, whether or not you're a gamer or you're a music fan, you know, or you're a movie buff. I feel like it's, it's like that, that dichotomy, those, those, that compartmentalization is still happening, but all media is competing with each other. Like it Mm. never used to be. And I think that has sort of affected music writing in general, you know, and that is, it is a more like mass media quote unquote content creation thing. And, and of course, when the specialness of it is taken out of it, maybe that does lead a little bit to, to burnout. Who knows? Maybe, yeah. I could mm-hmm. also see, it's interesting you say kids are just kind of like, oh, I'm a music fan now. But considering how much genre has kind of folded into itself in the mainstream, especially like, I mean, there's so many artists like Post Malone or whatever is a fine example of like someone who's he just makes music like he i guess he's kind of a hip-hop artist he's kind of a pop artist he's kind of a country punker like i really like liked that that latest record of his surprisingly i did listen i'm not a huge posty fan but neither am i uh, i just gave uh, it a spin and uh, it's not thought bad. It was good it's not bad okay. it's not bad i'm still not a huge <laughs> fan of him but hollywood's bleeding i mean that type of music just doesn't really speak to me but uh-huh. it's for what it is it's not bad you know okay and i think you're right in that regard you know, genre has sort of blended. I remember early 2010s, people were talking about post-internet, quote unquote, post-internet music, you know? Yeah, and, that's that's kind of, I feel like it's still stuck around. I think 100, 100 Gex kind of uh, I just is listened the latest to, iteration of I that. just listened to 1,000 Gex like two or three days ago because I remember I, I just didn't listen to it when it came out. And then so many people were talking about it recently and, and past recently. And I was like, okay, well, I might as well give this a shot. And I cannot put my finger on it. And I think that's why so many people are remarking on it. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's hard to, dis, it's hard to even to decide whether or not it's, it's worth the discussion. Mm. In my opinion. You Do know? you not like it? It's not that I don't like it. It's that it is music that was once reviled so heavily mm-hmm. once upon a time, you know, like it's about as close to crunk core Oh, as yeah. anything I, <laughs> you know, it's like, and I remember those days when uh, I was in high school and people were listening to Broken Side and like mm-hmm. just, just ripping on it so hard. Yeah. And it's hard not to forget that. But then you listen to something like A Thousand Gex and how they don't give a shit. Mm-hmm. And they just sort of want to make music that is about, it's like past junk food. It's like pure refined sugar. Yeah. You know, and there is something very admirable about that. I don't know how to describe it. I mean, people keep saying, go listen to it some more. Ignore the fact that it, it, it might sound like trash to you at the beginning, if that's your opinion. You know, there's something going on here. And I might give it another spin. 
you know, a second. It's just, it's, it's, it's very extreme music, you know, and there's something to be said about that now, considering how some, how much music right now is decidedly not extreme. Yeah. It's definitely a reaction to the whole chill, you know, chill artists. Oh man. Which I don't get me wrong. I love that kind of music. I, I, my, some of my formative years in college were spent loving that kind of music. I remember when I first discovered Mac DeMarco in 2013 and just being like, wow, this guy's got it down pat, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and Beach House and all those classic artists. And now it's so funny when I, I'm not on Submit Hub anymore, but when I used to be, I would get um, songs submitted to me and you could easily just, just put them into boxes. Like this person's doing a Beach House, this person's doing a Mac DeMarco, this person's doing mm-hmm. a Tame Impala, you know how influential those sounds ended up being, but how just sort of kind of tired it just ended up all sounding. I can see a a hundred Gex wanting to be and other bands like black Midi, for example, trying to be like a, an alternative to that, you know? Yeah. Funny how there's always an alternative, despite the fact that you can sort of all describe it as alternative. (laughs) (laughs) Always an alternative to the alternative. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Post alternative. Has there, (laughs) has there been a post alternative? I don't know. It it never ended. (laughs) I guess there should be, yeah. Yeah, who knows? What kind of music would be post-alternative? That that's a rabbit hole. I don't know if we should get into that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Uh before we close out this um discussion, there's one more thing I want to ask you. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know how personal a question is gonna be, but you are the kind of person who does freelancing as a job, sticks to the nine to five, listens, I imagine, to so much music all the time. Uh do you feel any sense of burnout? Is there any way that you keep yourself from feeling a sensing a sense of burning out? You know, um, you can be honest. No, yeah, I, I don't know if I've really had burnout yet from music writing, um, just because I think that like I do it a lot. It's obviously my job, but like I think I can always. I mean, especially now in quarantine, I'm not getting quite as much work as I usually do. So I'm like, I could take on more. Um, I still have this like, I don't know where it comes from, but just hunger to like prove myself and continue getting up in the industry. So like I do still like just want to say yes to everything and kind of like do as much as I possibly can take on. The drive, Uh, yeah. And even if it's kind of, I'm like, oh my God, what did I get myself into? I have to write five things this week. Like I always come on the other end like, all right, I did it. I feel really good about it. I guess like I can feel burnout sometimes on just like listening to music just for maybe like a couple days. Um, Cause yeah, I listen to so much. And like, I think at this point, some, I mean, my taste has always kind of been changing. It's never been like super stagnant or like super easy to define, but like I am kind of going through a little bit of the cliche, like mid twenties um, ex like super rockist guy kind of being like, I don't know if rock <laughs> music's all that great. Like, um, I was just kind of like, I mean, no, I, I still love some but all my favorite music is mostly rock music, but like, it's easy just, I think to reset myself when I do feel a little burnout on something, I'm just like, all right, sit back, listen to something completely different and I'll always find something else to love. And then that'll just inspire me to either write more or just like mm. fall back in love with music all over again. So, so far, no burnout. <laughs> it's good. Excellent. It's the one thing you can say about the modern era of music consumption is that as far as like listening to too much of one type of music is almost impossible now, you know? Yeah. Especially because there's so many places to be recommended new stuff, you know? 
the the fact that there's so much art being produced nowadays is always going to be a double-edged sword. You know, mm-hmm. I always I'm of the opinion that more art is always better, but then it comes to the fact where how much of this how much of this stuff is not getting coverage versus how much of that stuff is worth listening to. You know, so yeah, you know, I mean, it's you know. just so much. It's overwhelming. I mean, there's overwhelming amount of good stuff to listen to, let alone overwhelming amount of like bad or mediocre stuff yeah and so, who are we to judge yeah i guess is the important question nice. but then that comes back to i i guess the, the beginning of it you know um and then i mean and you mentioned the, uh, you know sometimes you're a little stressed out about the fact that you've got so much in your play but then you end up getting it on the other side i think that really is the key to keeping from getting burnt out is to understand that whatever you want to do whether or not it's the thing that you want to do is going to come with some element of suffering Mm-hmm. You know, and if you just sort of have that in the back of your mind and you get it and you know that when you are feeling that, that it's just a part of it, you know, I think that that's helpful to to get that controlled under control and not let it. Because I see so many people try to get into the stuff that they want to do, especially nowadays in the world where you can all of a sudden play video games for a living, you know, yeah. or, or do whatever the hell you want to do that you used to do is leisure time now is a career that you expect to do it and then have an easy go of it. And then it's absolutely not what it is. And then your expectations just sort of get thrown out the window. And I see a lot of people burning out because of that. So I know I felt that and it's, you just sort of have to change your perspective a little bit. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. I definitely, I've got to say, I don't have my days where I'm like, I don't want to do anything today. I'm uh, having a day like that today. I got to tell yeah. you. Okay. So, you know, <laughs> I know, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I guess overall, like, I mean, also, I like, I think because I'm freelance, I have to continue or I don't make money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so there's, there's you got no a little bit of a guillotine on top of your head. Yeah, just a little so bit. Like, gotta keep going, like, whether you like it or not, which is honestly could sometimes be a good motivating tool as much as it can be stressful. So, yeah, it depends on perspective, how you look yeah. at it. Yeah. You know? Um, that being said, Eli, thank you so much for this conversation. I thought it was fantastic. I learned a lot. Um, I hope you guys listening at home learned a lot as well. Uh, make sure to go check out all of Eli Ennis's work. Um, uh, all of his stuff is compiled on eliennis.contently.com. I'll link it in the podcast page. Um, and make sure to check us out at Tape Deck Podcast. Tape Deck. I got to learn how to say my own website correctly. TapeDeckPodcast.com. We've got lots of coverage. If you feel like donating, check out the Patreon page. We've got exclusive content for there. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much, Eli, for joining the podcast. I had a fun time. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Take care, guys. Have a good rest of your Friday. Bye.